0: Good Sunday morning, this is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, vinyl record sales are up. I'll check in with the owner of a new record store to find out what it's like to sell vinyl in 2023. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan of Arbinal will join me to review Steppenwolf Theater's latest. We'll also take a closer look at a different prominent theater company's surprising news to pause programming for a year. Later in the show, I'll catch up with actress and comedian Mary Lynn rice Cobb to talk about her memoir, and I'll take you to a sensory playground that's all about slime. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Last year for the first time since 1987, sales of vinyl records surpassed those of compact discs. According to the end-of-year report from the Recording Industry Association, music fans purchased more than 41 million records, totaling $1.2 billion in sales. That's up 20% from the year before, and it's not just a one-year fluke. Record sales have been going up for the last 16 years. So, after 35-plus years of independent music shops closing, maybe now is the right time to open a record store.
1: Why not try it? you know if i don't try it i'll kick myself i noticed that a lot of record stores are still open a bunch in the city like reckless and you know a mile long in wheaton has been open everybody made it through the pandemic so it's just a matter of you know a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work and just positive attitude
0: this is julie hughes she's the owner of the just opened mudroom records in downtown glen ellen The independent retailer sells vinyl, concert tees, and other music-related memorabilia. I recently stopped in Mudroom Records to talk to Hughes about what it's like opening a record store in 2023. Why open a record store?
1: I was a stay-at-home mom for almost 18 years with my kids, and I needed something to do for my third act in life. So I did work at Rose Records a thousand years ago um, in the 80s. Um, It was... Belmont and Ashland in the city. And it was fun, and I've always loved music and always kept my record collection with me. I have an 18-year-old son who, about a year and a half ago, said, Mom, I want to start collecting vinyl. And I said, oh, well, I can help you out with that. Mm -hmm. And so we went to um, a record store and got him a turntable and speakers. As soon as he was excited about it, it got me excited about it, too. And I understand that there was a vinyl resurgence, like going back as far as 2006, 2007. But, you know, I was busy raising children, so mm. I was just kind of like out of the loop. Once he was into it, I got big into it. And then my youngest one day woke up. I know this is sounding odd, but she said, Mom, I had a dream you owned a record store.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and so I was like, what? Really? And so I have worked retail in the past, like I said, so I got a job at a record store and kind of learned the ropes and then decided to strike out on my own.
0: Mudroom Records is located in the heart of downtown Glen Allen on Main Street, though he was originally envisioned a different space. Well initially I
1: started out thinking, okay, I would like to find a basement space because I remember those stores where you'd go downstairs or go upstairs and it was an experience. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot available, and this spot opened up. I was just kind of hoping for it to be, you know, a little bit of a hideaway. And then, of course, everyone said, you're crazy. Yeah. You can't yep. pass this spot up. It's on Main Street. It's, right. You're going to get a lot of traffic, meaning people walking past the store. And so I just kind of went with that, and I'm glad I did. Because, I mean, I love the space, and we're getting nothing but, you know, good vibes and good compliments from people. And as one of my, uh, I have a high school student who helps me out. He said, yeah, it's nice to have this here because everything else is just, you know, clothing stores for, no offense, middle-aged women. (laughs) None taken.
0: (laughs) I think of, like, owning a record store as, like, a... A dream job you know some people it would be uh, like being a movie critic or or like being on the radio did you come into this with like a philosophy of like what you wanted this store to be
1: well partly I would like it to be a hangout for young kids who are really into vinyl again and it's you know it's a destination you know people come here and they look around they spend time here I I want to set up like a a couch or something over there. I just can't seem to find something, you know, that doesn't look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Just so people can come and, you know, hang out. And I was was hoping that they would want to talk about music and talk about bands. And, you know, my tastes definitely run toward um, post-punk and 1980s and uh, New Wave and just 70s AM radio, rock and roll. And hair metal, which I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of that time period. But I do, I am aware of what's, you know, popular now because, thankfully, my kids tell me, and so you know they told me what to order. I do have Taylor Swift. She sold out really quickly.
0: You already sold out of your Taylor Swift
1: yes. albums. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like the first day, it's like oh. gone. But you know, bands like Arctic Monkeys and Travis Scott, Tyler the Creator, lots of things that maybe I'm not completely familiar with, but I know that my kids' friends are listening to it, so gotta have it.
0: Yeah, so it's a mix of, you'll have new vinyl and then you're also, you have some used vinyl.
1: Right, we call it (laughs) pre-loved. Not because we're, you know, pretentious, but because it just sounds funny.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) then can people bring in records
1: they can um i just put this we buy records up here on behind the counter and then i'm going to put a sign in the window um i've also had people say they have vintage t-shirts that they want to bring in and and am i interested i'm like yes i am very much so so t-shirts we will buy t-shirts and um vinyl
0: yeah, that's, that's right up my alley, because I kept all my, my T-shirts. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to part with them, so don't get any ideas. <laughs> but, uh, but I would come in here just to look at vintage T-shirts. Do you also view this place as a community hub for young people or music lovers? Exactly. One
1: of, one of our first customers bought uh, Steely Dan, Can't Buy a Thrill. And my son, who's 18, so into Steely Dan right now. You know, he talked to the person who bought it and he was just like riding high. He's like, Mom, this is so cool. You know, we're, we're talking about music, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's just he got a really big kick out of it and a thrill out of it. And every young kid, it seems, that comes in here has just talked about the bands they like and it just, you know, I want it to be an inclusive, open space for everybody to come in and, you know, music is life is what you want to go to Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. Music is life, so everybody, you know, who doesn't like music? Who, who hasn't been inspired by a lyric or a band or, or just has, you know, changed their life because of a philosophy of a band or just found solace in
0: lyrics? And also that personal evolution of tastes you can, like, map with music. So when I was younger, pop music, and then one day, all of a sudden, like the cure made sense to me mm-hmm. and then it's like okay who inspired the cure and then you can yeah. keep going
1: yeah you you see you know i know that i think the sp- spotify do this where you know if you like this band right, you right. like this band i haven't really like figured out the streaming services yet i mean I, <laughs> showing my age i guess yeah i would always do that like I, oh this band sounds like the replacements which is my favorite band ever uh-huh. and then i would go out and buy their album without even hearing it because someone told me oh if, you know you'll love these guys they they, you know they're influenced by the replacements they they're from minneapolis you know things like that you just you know the sound of the of the area where the music was coming from was kind of similar so it was a cool thing to do
0: if you're just tuning in i'm gary zydeck you're listening to the arts section i'm talking with julie hughes the owner of the new record store mudroom records while vinyl album sales have reached a 35 year high Selling tangible media in a brick-and-mortar space is still a risky proposition for an independent business owner.
1: You know, being a new business owner, a lot of people have come in and said, "I'm gonna come in all the time, and you know, I'm gonna support you, and gotta support local businesses, things like that." So I think it's a it's a way of life here in Glen Ellen. I think everyone likes to spend their money downtown,
0: yeah,
1: even with the construction.
0: I know the margins are, are tough with new vinyl and things like that so maybe a person could save a couple bucks, but you're investing in having this space here so that it's part of the community.
1: I'm guilty of like going into a store and saying, oh, I could get this on Amazon for so much cheaper. And, but I stopped doing that because it felt kind of gross.
2: Yeah.
1: It's not that much, you know, you don't save that much money and it just didn't feel right. So right. I'm more into like supporting the small businesses and everything in town and around the surrounding suburbs. You
0: envision maybe having concerts here or some events.
1: Yes, absolutely. I that's really like on the forefront. I, I also have a basement space that I need to do something with. Um, so we're just throwing ideas around, kicking ideas around. But I have I have some musician friends that have already expressed interest that they you know singer-songwriters come with, in with their acoustic guitar to invite people and maybe private events maybe a private event, but then, you know, continue on with, you know, public events. I have to, you know, okay it with the village, of course, because <laughs> I, I haven't even looked into it. Sure. But I do envision that, I envision like, even young kids who wanna have like an open mic night, who have a band or or, or adults, doesn't matter, like something like that would be really, really cool for the community.
0: What about the name Mud Room?
1: Mud Room is just, I liked the way it sounded okay. and I figured we're in the suburbs. Everybody has a Mudroom here.
0: It might be 2023, but stepping into Mudroom Records felt like a throwback to the pre-Napster days of record stores. There are posters and music lyrics on the walls. The album bins have an eclectic mix that include older and contemporary releases. Everything reflects Hughes' taste. I asked about her favorite records. Top five favorite album. Oh,
1: okay. Um, The Replacements, Let It Be. The replacements, Please to meet me. The soundtrack from the movie Godspell.
0: Oh wow! Okay.
1: Probably Drive By Truckers, Southern Rock Opera. Five, uh, David Bowie, Rise and Fall I'm a
3: stardust.
0: So I know you've only been open uh, a short period of time, but is owning a record store what you thought it would be? <laughs>
1: Yes. It's it's been really really cool. It's a lot of work though. Yeah. <laughs> um, as with anything that, you know, a lot of work, a lot of different juggling different balls in the air and a lot of things to consider, but no, I I love it. I think it's just like the greatest thing for me right now. <laughs>
0: That was Julie Hughes. She's the owner of the new music store, Mudroom Records. It's located at 494 North Main Street in Glen Ellen. You can check out the store's Instagram at Mudroom Records GE. And a quick reminder, if you listen to The Art Section on WDCB every Sunday, make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. Lots of additional content over there, plus an archive of past episodes and features. Check out theartsection.org. The Art And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary.
0: Steppenwolf Theater is presenting a world premiere. It's called Another Marriage, and it comes from ensemble member Kate Arrington. The play follows the relationship between a man and a woman over the course of around 17 years. Longtime film and TV actor Judy Greer plays Sonny, and Steppenwolf ensemble member Ian Barford plays Nick. Fellow ensemble member Terry Kinney directs. This is Arrington's first produced work as a playwright. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What did you think? This
2: is a, a production that most first time playwrights can only dream about with uh, A list actors and A list directors, and it's a strong, intimate show on one of. Steppenwolf's uh, two main stages, they're big stages. And you know, the opportunity to stretch as an artist is a benefit of Steppenwolf ensemble membership. So stretching is just what she's doing, and that's the way it should be. Even so, I feel that Ms. Errington has made two beginner playwright mistakes with another marriage, despite the assistance of two dramaturgs in developing the play and an astute director Uh, Terry Kinney, who's one of the Steppenwolf co-founders. I didn't think it was a bad production. I felt that there were a couple of obstacles in the structure of the play itself. And uh, before I get into that, I think I'll toss it over to you, Carrie, to get your initial
4: reaction. Sure. You know, I think one of the things to know about this play is that it's structured asynchronously. So we see the beginning of a relationship between Sonny and Nick, and then it kind of moves back and forth a little bit in time there's so she's not playing a straightforward take on the rise and fall of a marriage so that might be a little daunting in some ways i think it does it gives us this sort of fractured atlas approach to it i wasn't particularly bothered by that i could see where it might present some issues for Others. I don't think it's a perfect play by any means, but I think it's a particularly strong debut. One of the things that has always struck me about Kate Arrington as a performer, and perhaps people who in our listenership who have seen her over the years may agree, she's very chameleonic to me. Every time I see her in a play, I'm like, oh, that's Kate Arrington. You know, she doesn't seem to have a particular type or a particular to what she does. She's just very, uh, you know, seamless, very much disappears into the role. And I feel like she's playing a little bit about that, the nature of what it is to play a role in a marriage in another marriage. Sonny and Nick are both hyper-literate, hyper-verbal people. <laughs> They're the kinds of people who toss off bon mots from bringing a baby, you know, as, as part of their daily discourse. <laughs> but I think in a way what she's going for, and I would say that it's not completely completely successful, this examination of what it means to live your relationships and also to be dissecting them and performing them at the same time. So that's sort of the take that I had on it. I thought it was a really interesting effort. And I think the production, as you mentioned, Jonathan, is really strong. So I think, I suspect I liked it a little bit better than you did, but I recognize that there might be some issues of underdevelopment in some places or, Lack of clarity, given the the challenges that Arrington has given herself with the way the play is structured. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm. Uh, it's not that I disliked. Certainly, I did not.
2: I I liked the performances, and I didn't dislike the play. But uh, uh, you know, I, I'm an old literary manager. I'm an old dramaturg. I've, uh, you know, I, I held that post at uh, four or five different theater companies over the years. and I've worked or helped develop a lot of new plays. So I, I, I won't boast and say I have the perfect eye for the structure of plays, but let's say I'm, I'm a little more attuned than, than a lot of other people. And, you know, you made the point that Nick and Sonny are, are hyper-literate and hyper-literary, and that's one of the issues I have. In Act One, when Nick and Sonny first meet and become college lovers, I felt I was being talked to death. They both are literary, and they're both wannabe writers, and their discussion of literature is about the third scene in the play. Their discussion of literature across the bed, where they have just presumably made love, their discussion of literature went on and on at a point where the play needs to be gathering speed and force. Having been a literary type myself in college, I didn't find either their discussion nor the characters especially engaging Now, the playful was skillful enough that I wasn't bored. I don't mean it bored me. Mm -hmm. No. But I was distinctly detached from the characters. You know, what makes them special? Why should I care about them? And I didn't find convincing arguments in that scene, in that early point in Act 1, when I, I need to be convinced. Now, I quickly understood Another Marriage is about the characters of Sonny and Nick. It is a character study. It's not a play about story or events, but I felt I was being told everything about them and not shown, not having it revealed. And this is very much a frequent first-time mistake.
4: I sort of felt like the device that was used to reveal is their daughter, who we see kind of hanging around uh, on the, played by Nicole Skameka, who is kind of hanging around on the edges of the -the in-the-round staging with her iPad, presumably taking notes. And what I thought was interesting, and I do think that this is the place where the play could be stronger if, in fact, Arrington revisits, it's not just about Sonny and Nick. It is, uh, it is about their histories with their families. We learn quite a bit more about Sonny. All we really know about uh, Nick is that he is the third son in a family of also you know, apparent you know, literary wunderkinds. But Sonny's family history... Particularly her mother. Um, I hope it's not a spoiler to say she lost her mother at birth. I mean she was she her mother died giving birth to her. That is really her origin story. And I feel like what I found a emo- like potentially at least emotionally the most compelling is the idea that the daughter is trying to find out about her family and like it, really learning to understand trying to understand her mother through understanding. What the history was, the grandmother that she never knew, with indeed the mother that Sonny never knew. Uh, and there's, you know, so like these women who are thwarted, because that is part of it. And I feel like that's kind of where Arrington is, to me at least, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, Jonathan, but if you've seen the films of Noah Bombach, like Squid and the Whale, Marriage Story, I mean, even the name of this play obviously echoes that a bit. And the idea of these very high powered couples who just cannot keep it together. There's professional jealousy, there's a sense of thwartedness, there's some very deeply hurtful things they do to each other. I feel like Arrington looked at that and said, I want to do that, but not in the straightforward way necessarily that Baumbach is. So I think that's an interesting place to jump off. I don't know that she's completely gotten there.
0: Let's pause here for a moment and listen to a clip from another marriage. We'll hear part of a pivotal scene between Sonny and Nick that illustrates how resentments can build up in a long-term relationship. Nick has done something that he believes is really special for Sonny, and she takes it a different way.
3: It's not perfect, but it's the book I wanted to write. I'm not going to get dragged down a dark alley by (laughs) someone who wears converse with his suits and tells me with a minor overhaul it might be perfect for their YA division. No. You're the one who says kids are the only
0: ones worth writing for. That's
4: not... You're
0: not helping. Better than anything I ever
3: wrote. please. Please, please don't do that.
4: Open the
0: box. Seriously.
3: Sit the
1: box. in the box. It's in the box. It's in the box.
3: published my book? I did. Do you like the cover?
2: I got your sister to design it. Uh
3: Uh-huh.
4: It's beautiful. I just, I agree with you completely. Your book is perfect. I mean, fine, it's, it's not perfect, but it's yours.
2: Of course you'll get it published. You'll take Littleton's notes or you'll find another publisher, but I wanted you to have this exactly how you intended it.
5: Do you like it? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so
0: much. That was Judy Greer as Sonny and Ian Barford as Nick in Steppenwolf Theater's world premiere play, Another Marriage.
4: For me at least, and maybe this is just because I've been deep into some genealogy research of my own family and seeing histories of women in my family who have died young or you know, people who did not know their mothers because they lost them young, so I will fully copped to the fact that I might have been a little emotionally primed for that. But I, I think that maybe that's the story. That Yes, they're hyperliterate. They are influenced by the books they read. But they're also influenced by this family mythology. And I really feel like mm, that's, that's the emotional nugget right there that we need more of. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but that's kind of where... My mind has been, and I have been thinking about this play since I saw it, so take that for what it's worth. There well, are plenty good. of no. plays where i just no. kind of like, eh, you know, yeah. <laughs> one and done. Yeah. So I think the fact that we're dissecting it like this shows that we believe that Errington has a great talent for this, that he no, you know, that, that deserves more nurturing.
2: The fact that you've been thinking about the play is certainly a good sign. It's what the late, great uh, teacher and critic John Gassner called the morning after effects. The next day or two days later, <laughs> yeah. do you still think about the play? Or was it, you know, a nice two hours in the theater and you and you forget it completely? So that's a good sign. But you pick up on Joe, the, the name of their daughter, mm-hmm. who is a young adult uh, when we see her. And for me, that is the second problem. And while I agree with the way you explained it, that a lot of this may be intended to bring somehow Joe's uh, perspective into the play. It's not quite working, and at least yeah. for me, and I'll tell you why. Um, is, jo is a narrator of sorts, but she doesn't narrate. She doesn't speak a word in Act One. As you said, she lurks around the edges of, literally of the in-the-round staging and types uh, scene headings which, are on her mobile device, which are then projected for the audience to see. Mm-hmm. We are seeing her parents' history through her eyes. Okay, I understand that, but you know what? It makes no difference if you totally physically took Joe out of Act One. I, uh, you know, you could still project the scene titles, uh, mm-hmm. and her parents' narrative wouldn't change. Now, in Act Two, Joe speaks directly to the audience telling us details about mostly her mother's parents, her grandparents, right. as you said, um, but very little about Nick's history. Now, sure, we gain information uh, about the family history, but nothing that Joe says to us about her grandparents materially affects the story or the outcome. Right. Obviously, Kate Errington feels Joe is essential to the play, but... I got to tell you, I don't understand how or why. In a play with only four characters, there actually is a fifth, um, nameless, who uh, a doctor whom we see a couple of times. But in a play with only four characters, each one of them really must engage in a way which matters and makes a difference. So for me, the question the two dramaturgs and director Terry Kinney should have been asking Kate Errington is why is Joe
4: here I, wouldn't, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that particularly in the first act, I, thought, I know some people found the first act stronger because I think it follows a little bit more linearly, perhaps at reference Baumbach, you know, the sorts of stories that we're used to seeing, the familiar tale of a high powered you know the high, highly intellectual couple. one person's career takes off, the other is thwarted, a child comes along that further complicates things. That's all very interesting. It's all very well done. But to me, it became more challenging in the second act, but I think also a little bit more interesting. And I think it's precisely for why you said, Jonathan, that we see Joe coming forward more, and we see her in real time struggling to kind of tell us about this is my mother's history. Like, and, and so that's an emotionally rich thing. My mother never knew her mother. You know, I mean, how do I get to know my mother, and how do I know my stories? when there's all these, these points of which we've been cut off. How do we create stories? Are they are they stories that help us? Are they stories that further distance us? I think that again, I would say the emotional nugget and I would really love to see that brought out more because although in some ways the second act is to, to use a phrase I probably overused a little messier, I also found it more emotionally compelling. And I think it's exactly what you said, because Joe is coming forward a little bit more.
2: I will tell you, for what it's worth, I felt the second act was stronger for me. I felt more involved. I've already said I felt detached from the characters in the first act, more involved. You know, should Kate Arrington write another play? Absolutely, yes. She's smart, and she's talented, and she should understand if she hears this. I hope she will, that nothing, I say, is meant to be adversarial. Because, you know, writing a play is a brave act, and even Shakespeare wrote some bad ones. There's a learning curve <laughs> if you're going
4: to be a playwright, and
2: Kate Arrington is on it, and I hope she
4: continues on it. Yeah. And I think the thing, too, that I appreciated is that, you know, it's so easy to write plays about marriages where there's infidelity or, like, whose fault is it? This really is about, they both do some, I won't, it's, it's a bit of a spoiler, so I won't uh, go there, but, I mean, at one point, Sonny does something that pretty Darn near unforgivable uh, to Nick um, as their marriage is dissolving, and yet Nick has also, you know, uh, you know, stepped out and has not perhaps been as supportive as he could be. So I, I like the fact that it's that we are asked to see them in all their flaws, and I think that's that's really an interesting thing for me. It's not about how did this marriage end; it's more about who are these people, and to the, to an even more important point, I think she's pointing the way to. How do you continue to have relationships with people when you're no longer married? You know, I think we have such a narrative of marriage that you meet, you fall in love, and then the marriage ends. Yeah, or it doesn't. But there are so many, in reality, so many of us know couples or perhaps have been a part of couples where you're no longer married or you're no longer connected as you once were, but you're still a part of each other's lives, whether or not you have children. How do you do that? How do you continue after the end? And I think that's a really interesting question that she could wrestle with more, and I think she has some interesting things to say about that. So, again, I'll be very interested to know how, how that narrative, that in the general sense, develops in her work going forward.
0: One side note that I think will be of interest to our local audience Judy Greer, uh, very recognizable, I'm sure everyone listening has seen her in something on a TV show or in a, a movie for a long time. She played like a supporting best friend type character. She's expanded into other types of roles. But I didn't know that she actually, she went to DePaul University. That's where she got her uh, theater degree, so pretty strong local connection.
4: Oh, I did not know that either.
0: The world premiere of Another Marriage continues at Wolf Theater through July 23rd. And now we're going to move on to some theater news. Over the past few years, we've talked about theater closings and some major leadership changes. Some of those were truly surprising. Others were somewhat expected. Uh, This past week, some theater news came out that was truly surprising, at least from my perspective. Looking Glass Theater announced it was pausing programming and laying off over half its staff. I think there's two levels to this surprise because we just talked about their current production lucy and charlie's honeymoon the dueling critics reviewed it a couple weeks ago and i talked to the uh, writer and star of the production a week before that so there's this freshness and then just on a deeper level i put looking glass in that group of prestigious chicago theater companies so to hear that there are financial problems and that the company is pausing programming for a year makes me wonder then what's gonna happen to some of the smaller theater companies that aren't even at that prestigious level. I mean, if it's happening at Looking Glass, I'm curious what the the two of you thought when you heard the news.
4: Yeah, definitely most prominent. Uh, won the, the Tony Award for Regional Theater in 2011. Sadly, this means that it's, well, the, the Victory Gardens Theater, which has been on pause or going through its own you know, regeneration, we don't know into what, also you know, won the Regional Tony in 2001. So, Um, I was very surprised. I don't know if you were, Jonathan. I mean, it seemed like, you know, they had been coming back. And Looking Glass to me has always felt, you know, a little bit charmed in terms of, you know, the, the, the growth that they had, getting that space in the water tower pumping station on Michigan Avenue. I was there for Lucy and Charlie's honeymoon after opening, and it seemed like a pretty good audience. But I think maybe that's also a reflection of how we don't always know how things are going. You know, just we go on opening nights or close to it. Things seem fine and i want to be clear that this doesn't mean they're closing permanently but they are going through a process of re, re you know re-examining what their priorities are and what they're able to do jonathan were you surprised
2: by this announcement i was surprised this took, uh, yeah.
4: this took me completely uh, it uh, you
2: know knocked me for a loop or whatever uh, whatever like... cliche you want to use you kind of knocked me over with a feather uh Whatever. Yes, it surprised me. Uh, This is a prominent company, Tony Award-winning company, uh, and it was one company that I assumed was among Chicago's well-heeled companies Mm -hmm. with uh, uh, deep enough financial pockets to survive uh, the process of rebuilding a post-pandemic audience, but that was not the case. Now, as you said, they are not closing. They're not shutting down. They're going to continue to do some sort of producing uh, or, or creative work as yet to be specified. But they are not producing you know, major productions on their downtown uh, water tower uh, uh, main space. What they have said is they will produce again next spring. They said the spring of 2024. Right. And in the meantime, they have launched a capital campaign Hoping to raise two and a half million dollars, which is, relatively speaking, a modest amount of company uh, of money for a company the size uh, and uh, and of the prestige and stature of Looking Glass Theatre Company. So I hope that that they right. are successful and it will carry them through. But yes, it um, it is a surprise. Chicago now of its six theatre companies which have received the Tony Award for best regional theater of the six two are now suspended looking glass and victory gardens theater which is now they're they're not even suspended they have stopped producing right they are a legal entity they have a board and they own real estate but they no longer are producing anything and we are waiting to see what will happen to them you know regrettably regrettably this is nationwide the washington post uh last thursday had an article about the 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 crisis that they called it that a desperate crisis of america's regional theaters and the los angeles times had a big story on it about uh, two weeks ago maybe three weeks ago uh and we are seeing it here at home
4: and right right and and i think and some news. of this is yeah, I think some of this was happening, you know, even pre pandemic. I think you and I both read a lot about how, you know, subscriptions were not necessarily, you know, which have always been the lifeblood uh, for ticket sales. You know, younger generations are not necessarily interested in getting subscriptions. They tend to be more single ticket buyers. Um, so there have been numbers of different programs over the years to make, you know, flex subscriptions to try to make that pot of money for the beginning, you know, appear early on. Uh, but I do think, yes, this is something new. I think people are. Um, leery about going back in some ways, um, and I think maybe we're at a kind of a generational inflection point. Um, certainly if you look at the, you know, the, the example of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, there was a lot of there were apparently a lot of complaints that their programming was trying to be too woke. Well, of course, how are you going to get new audiences if you're not appealing to to, to issues of the day, right? I think that uh, Looking Glass, to me, again, this is why I'm surprised, had always done a fairly good job. Now, yes, like, like the original Steppenwolf Ensemble. They were founded out of a group of people from college. They were primarily a white institution, but they've certainly done a lot of work and partnered with, the, most recently, uh, with Congo Squares. Uh, what to Send Up When It Goes Down, which they opened their fall season with in co-production. You know, they seem to be very conscious about, um, you know, reaching out and trying to represent all of the city, despite the fact that they're, you know, I, I remember when that Water Tower Theater opened. There was a piece, I think, in the New York Times that said this is kind of like if a major regional theater opened on Rodeo Drive. You know, it's just like it just doesn't happen. So perhaps that gave us a sense of you know their their financial uh, you know security that clearly has not always been the case through, as as we've seen now through the pandemic. But I'm heartened by the fact that they seem to be taking it seriously. It's not a recriminatory situation, as we saw at Victory Gardens. It feels like no, we just we need to kind of be thinking about this now, so we don't get into deeper trouble later. So, um, yeah. I am sending all good wishes because looking, you know, Chicago without Looking Glass, quite honestly, you know, Chicago theater without Looking Glass is unimaginable to me. So,
2: yeah, yes, we have to, we have to hope that they come back and uh, maybe send them a check ourselves from the right. vast Amount of revenue we and, have as professional and, and theater I think critics. A really That's good a tongue-in-cheek remark.
4: Yeah, but I think it's a really good place for us to remind our listeners. You know, if there's an arts organization that you love, go see them now if you can. Help them out. Go. Yeah, you know, the best thing you can do is see a show, talk it up, spread the news on social media. I know they say that in every curtain speech that you ever go to, but you know, whether it's a music ensemble, an opera company, you know, uh, a gallery, or a theater, or a dance company, you know, please. Please try to support them. Um, I know it's summer and there's lots of other things to do, but um, there's also such richness here that we don't want to see. Yeah, you know, we don't want to say, you know, you know and, and what's the line? I can't quote the Joni Mitchell lyric correctly, but you know what I'm getting You know, cause, cause we don't know what bite. we've got till it's gone. And uh, well, uh, I, I don't want any. I don't, I, I'm tired of getting these announcements, so I'd like to try to staunch the yeah. bleeding while we can.
2: Engage with your favorite not for profit arts organization. Buy a ticket, go see a show, go, go to a concert, go to an exhibit, and if you possibly can, send them a tax-deductible donation. $25, $50, 100 500 if you can. That's what it takes.
0: The release, I think, said no. A pause in programming till late spring 2024. Do you think they'll put on their annual Steadfast Tin Soldier around the holidays?
4: They haven't said it, so I'm guessing not. And I'm wondering how it did, you know, because usually the holiday shows are such, I hate to say cash cows, but let's let's call let's it call cow a cow. No, say cow. It. <laughs> say it. That's,
2: that's why they do them year yeah. after year. They're, they're supposed to be cash cows. No,
4: they, But they did yeah, say something about lost. Looking Glass Alice and looking to do something, sharing out exciting news about Looking Glass Alice. They kind of teased that in their announcement. So that's been a long time, you know, uh, perennial hit for them. So I'm wondering if... Um, yeah, they're, they're planning on doing something with that as well.
0: Okay. Well, perhaps we'll
4: have, a tour. Yeah, perhaps.
0: Well, we'll keep our eye on the looking glass situation. Hopefully some good news to come. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much.
2: Oh, you're welcome, You're Gary. most welcome. And we hope we don't have any more bad news next week.
0: Right. <laughs> this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. If you're looking for something outside the box to do this summer, it might be time to check out some slime. This past winter, the New York-based slu Institute opened a Chicago location in the city's River North neighborhood. The 20,000 square foot sensory playground is filled with all sorts of activities designed to stimulate your senses, but the focus is definitely on slime.
3: People ask me all the time, what's your favorite slime to play with, and I'm like, what kind of mood am I in?
0: This is Karen Rabinovitz, one of the co-founders of the SLUMU Institute. I caught up with her and fellow co-founder Sarah Schiller at the Chicago location, which is at 820 Orleans Street, to talk about the journey to creating a communal slime playground. The original idea was sparked in 2016 after Rabinovitz received some bad news.
3: I was going through a really horrible time in my life. I had experienced a lot of tragedy around loss and the deep grief and mourning really put me in a depression and I sort of tapped out and during that time I sort of didn't know if I would ever find my joy again. I couldn't imagine how my life would pick back up and one day a really close friend came over. She was with her daughter. Her daughter at the time was 10 and had all of this handmade slime with her and I said oh my god Maddie I have to see your slime. I was aware of the cultural zeitgeist. I knew that there was a massive online phenomenon and community and you know, billions of views on YouTube. The minute I sunk my hands into this slime, I was hooked. It was nothing like the slime I grew up with in the 70s. I grew up with the original Mattel in a garbage can slime. And it was incredibly soothing and you know yummy. and it smelled like fruit Loops. And I was just immediately in my head, I was, I'm seven, I'm negotiating for one more bowl at the table with my mom. That was the only issue on my plate at that moment. And four hours went by and Maddie and I were still just, you know, wrist deep playing on the floor. And when she was leaving, I thought, this was the first time I really felt joy and had a real smile in two years. Where do I get more? So I became obsessed with slime buying slime and then i wanted to share my slime with sarah sarah and i've been really good friends for the last 15 years and i was like this is the best thing for stress release ever i had played with slime as a child also
0: this is sarah schiller the other co-founder of the slumu institute
6: when karen brought the slime of today over it just blew my mind the sense the textures uh, having two girls to play with The slime too just added to that feeling of coming together and being connected with them and those moments became really cherished and um, we started to talk about what can we do together to celebrate art to celebrate slime to bring joy this joy that we were having to more people
0: the two women worked on the concept for a couple years before unveiling the first iteration of the slumu institute
6: we felt like we could do a pop-up. We were like, "Let's do a pop-up for six months in New York City." Literally, the day that we opened our doors, we looked at each other and said, "This is more than a pop-up." We had thirty thousand visitors our first month, but it wasn't just the number of visitors; it was the reaction that we saw and the in voraciousness, the voraciousness, in, in, in the in the children and families' faces when they came in uh, that we knew we were onto something. And then if you, if you think about where we all came out of the pandemic, people need this more than ever. They need to get off their phones. They need to stop swiping. They need to connect with themselves. So connecting their brains to their uh, different senses and connect to each other, which is really talking, smiling, laughing, and, and playing. Because how
3: many times do you go out and you see a family or friends at a restaurant and every single one of them is on their screens? And you're like, if you're out with somebody else, you're on your screen to each other, be present with each other.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Sarah Schiller and Karen Rabinovitz, the co-founders of the SLUMU Institute an Immersive Sensory Experience in Chicago. So we've been talking a lot about slime. Some of you might be wondering what type of slime are we actually talking about? Some people listening without the visuals, they have like a preconceived notion of slime. So there is kind of a spectrum of the slime here. There's different types.
6: So first of all, I would say our slime is not sticky. So I think a lot of people think of it as sticky goo and our slime is gonna stick to itself so that when you're playing with it, it's not crawling all up and down your hands. And then we start to get into all the different textures. There's everything from a thick and glossy, which is just this beautiful ribbon of slime to our crunchier slimes that have bingsu beads in them or victory pellets. So it's, it's going to press and, and feel in your
3: hands very, very different when you go from one vat of slime to the next. What's really interesting is that we find that different people respond to different slimes. So somebody might come in and think, Butter slime is my favorite. And it's called butter slime because it's spreadable the way butter is, and it feels really rich and buttery. But then halfway through the experience, they're like, no, 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 floam is now my favorite. And it's because you get a different sensation. And sometimes I want things that are crunchy and really textured. Sometimes I want things that are really smooth that I could just sort of like, kind of manipulate my hands like I'm stretching, I'm coming together, or like a figure eight with my slime. I'm stretching, I'm coming together. I'm, you know, Sometimes I wanna lift it and watch it drizzle and that's a cloud slime. So it's really mood dependent. It's almost like, well, I don't know. It's like, what's your favorite thing to wear? Well, what, somebody might wanna wear sweats one day and jeans another and a dress the next. We've, one of our, one of our
6: funniest stories is um, we had a dad that came in with his sons and he really didn't know that much about slime. His kids had tried to make it. He thought it was a gooey mess and got halfway through the space and discovered phloam slime, which has these really lovely, like, sort of softer, bigger beads in it. And um, when he realized that he couldn't get phloam slime anywhere else, he took a chunk of it and put it in his pocket to take it home. He admitted that he stole the slime from us later on. And became an investor. And became an investor, <laughs> but we couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, he, he just didn't know and, didn't, and then had
3: to have it. And this is a man in his 50s. <laughs> That's the best part.
0: Another big part of the SLUMU Institute's mission is to create an inclusive and inviting environment for everyone.
3: Our two core missions are around neurodiversity inclusion and mental health because we realize that those are things that actually impact everyone and when we talk about our own personal connections to those things, somebody in the room always resonates with it.
0: When you use the term neurodiversity, does that refer to like different ways to stimulate your mind?
3: So for
6: us, neurodiversity is different ways to look at the world and how you process information. So that can include uh, someone who's on the autism spectrum, to someone who has ADHD, to someone like my older daughter, who has a rare genetic syndrome called Angelman syndrome. And we believe that everyone can add value and everyone is welcome here to play and have fun in whatever way that they want to interact with our world that we've created.
0: If you're curious about the company's name, SLUMU is the result of an online trend from a few years ago.
3: We spent a long time thinking about a name, and we knew we didn't want to be the Slime Institute, because we knew we were about more, and at, the, at its core we're about sensory play, and sensory play will, has always been a thing and will evolve, so we'll always evolve into other elements of what is a sensory. And we were talking about it for a long time. And what about that whole trend that happened in 2017, where people were saying, replace the vowels of your name with OO, and that's your slime name. So Karen becomes Kuroon. Sarah is Suru. Slime is Slumu. And the minute we heard it, we were like, I mean, game over. That's. A world that could be a universe the way that Smurfs or Peppa Pig or you know anything else in that vernacular is a universe and that felt like it was right to us and if you look I mean, you can't see her on the radio but for those who are listening but if you look around you these are characters that we all see in the verse and that's our Chicago dog so you know that's our version of a Chicago hot dog but Slimoo style.
0: Rabinovitz and Schiller aren't going to slow down anytime soon. In fact, their plans for slime domination are just getting started.
6: We have uh, big plans, big ideas, big dreams. We want to open more SLUMU experiences throughout the U.S. and internationally. There's so many cities that we want to bring this to and we feel actually I even need it. Uh, but we want to grow beyond that and take our Slumooverse and our world of Slumoo characters to children's books, into an animated series, into the Pixar movie, into the metaverse, uh, so that no matter where you are, you can tap into the joy that we've created in these physical places.
0: That was Sarah Schiller and Karen Rabinovitz. The co founders of the Slumoo Institute, the multi sensory slime playground, is located in Chicago's River North neighborhood. You can find more information at slumooinstitute.com. That's S L O O M O O Institute.com. <laughs> I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned into the Arts Section. Chances are you've seen Mary Lynn Rice Cub in something over the years, either a TV show or a movie, though most people know her best for playing Chloe on the Fox series 24.
5: Look, I'm sorry that my private
2: life hasn't remained private today.
0: I'm thinking the opposite. What do you mean? You're too
2: private. We've known each other for years. And today, I find that you're keeping secrets from me? Haven't you ever taken a psychology class? People keep secrets. I don't. Not for my friends. Why didn't you tell me Jack was alive?
5: Oh, come on. It's called national security.
2: Yeah, well, what about Spencer? I didn't even know you two were going out.
4: Give me a break. Okay, when we find the nerve gas and the alert level drops, we can have some chamomile tea, and I'll tell you all my secrets, okay?
0: In addition to acting in several projects, you might have seen her in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia or last year's breakout hit, The Dropout, Rice Cub is also a stand-up comedian and an author. Her recent book, Famish, is a memoir of sorts made up of 28 essays. I caught up with the Michigan native to talk about her book, some of her favorite roles, and her comedy influences. I think there's a lot of people out there that know you from all the the roles you've had in TV shows and movies, especially 24. But they might not be aware that you also do stand-up comedy. And really, you did that before you ever started acting. So who are some of the the comedians who influenced your style of comedy or who you looked up to?
4: The thing
5: about me doing stand-up is that the beauty of it is I was able to find my own style. That is unique to my personality it was a way for me to express myself that I couldn't do as a painter which is what I was going to school for
0: you know right and then speaking of that there is this weird local connection uh, for those of us here in Chicago that you write about in your book uh, coming out of high school you really wanted to study at the art institute here in chicago but for various reasons uh, that didn't happen but who knows if, if you did come to chicago everything might have been different
5: i did i wanted to go really really bad but i mean i didn't even have the money to go where i went i somehow figured it out but um i got into the chicago art institute but yeah there was no way i was gonna be able to pay and move and you know at the time i i commuted from my parents house and I think I just used charge cards and, and charged that tuition. And, you know, many, many years later, paid it off. But, yeah, I would have loved to have gone to the Art Institute. That was my dream. But I took my second dream and stayed in Detroit, which <laughs> is the equivalent, the equivalent there.
0: Similar Midwest values, probably.
5: Absolutely.
0: I think you write in the intro that um, you had thought about writing, a like, a memoir... Ish type of thing ten years ago. Then, so this idea of writing a a book has that been something that's been you've been thinking about for a while?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a natural offshoot of being a solo performer and being a comic and being a storyteller. And then, you know, now I've finally gotten to the point where I can look back and I'm also a fully grown adult who's had a complete, you know, life's worth of experiences. Co mingling with these brushes with fame and these, you know, being a TV movie actor. And that's kind of what the book is. It's a mixture of that high, low, you know, the Midwestern, the whole chapter about me waiting tables and my first audition. So you get that along with these juicy celeb anecdotes. So it's it's sort of, that's the idea behind it, is like these mundane everyday life uh, trials and tribulations that everybody goes through sprinkled with the the oddness of being on a hugely successful television show for eight years, you know?
0: Did you enjoy the the process of sitting down and putting these memories to paper?
5: I did enjoy it. I enjoy it the same way I enjoy any other creative process. I enjoyed it in that it was really, really hard, and it was a definite adjustment because, you know, I got up to get snacks every two minutes, and (laughs) then I sit anywhere. Any longer than that, it's, it's also the, you know, oh, I'm so sleepy. It's like whenever you sit down to, like, actually study or do something, not saying that I didn't want to do it, but the act of doing it, it's just like, oh, I'm tired or distracted. It's, it's a very different process than writing stuff for the stage that comes in sh- short snippets. But I was able to uh, dictate some of it out, out loud, and I, I used that as a jumping-off point for several of the
0: chapters. So we can't talk about all of the essays, but I'm hoping we can highlight a couple of my favorites. And one of them is this essay titled Getting the Part, where you really do a great job of writing what it's like behind the scenes and giving us a glimpse of how things work in Hollywood as far as casting. And then you write in this chapter about how you got on 24, and really the whole process was really the result of almost happenstance.
5: Yes. That's a good story, right? Yeah, man. It's got all the like dreamy parts in it. And, and I really, truly, the, just for your audience who hasn't read the book, and I won't give away the whole thing, but the, the producer of 24 had seen me in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and called me in. I didn't want to go in, said he was going to write a part for me. I didn't believe him. And then he did. It was just like, and and I write, oh, I write in the book that had he just called me in there to validate that he had seen me and liked my performance, that truly would have been enough. Everything else was just beyond what I could have imagined, you know?
0: And then there's a, a chapter titled Tom Cruise. We won't give too much away, but it's all about... But it's all about this specific time you worked with him on a film, uh, one of my favorites, called Magnolia, though that scene didn't make it in the film. In the next chapter, you write a little bit about your relationship to 24 co-star Kiefer Sutherland, uh, and for people of my generation, those are two pretty big names, Tom Cruise and Kiefer Sutherland growing up. Uh, those are two of my favorite actors, um, Lost Boys Forever. I know it sounds kind of shallow, but it is interesting reading about what these huge stars are like off camera. Uh, and you provide some really cool stories about your interactions with those two.
5: Oh, good. I'm so glad. And you you know, you know, called it, I'm the same way, growing up watching Tom Cruise and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's a big deal to be around both of these guys either one of them, let alone both of them, and the weird, you know, proximity and work I've I've been able to do.
0: And then a big part of the book, people will be able to guess this, from the the title, Fame-ish, is just about you kind of like navigating your life, you know, probably being recognized. I think a lot of people, I would guess, you know, know you from 24 and then all these other things you've done. What's like, do you ever get like the occasional like odd, Random or like I know you from oh, from this and it's absolutely. like
5: absolutely. I was in another city going to get a guest pass at a gym and this girl says, Are you from Legally Blonde Too? <laughs> and she walked she walked me around the gym to any of her coworkers or people in the gym. She was in Legally Blonde too, she told everybody. <laughs>
0: and
5: Yeah, I just thought that was hilarious and adorable and I didn't you know, I had to stand there and wait to see either the people either the people reacting like I don't care or wait, isn't she that person from this other thing that is way more known than that, but you know, I just walked around with her and let her show me off as the actress for Legally Blonde too. And then there's other completely opposite type of thing where so I did this independent movie called Mysterious Skin. And it's a really low budget, but very high quality, touching, really hard to watch movie because the subject matter is child abuse, sexual child abuse. But the story is of the two young men and how it affected them in very different ways and how they reconnect with each other. And it's just such a harrowing, but like, really beautifully done movie and so there's also stuff like that where someone will come out to me and say were you in mysterious skin and that has such a different it's like really moving because it's such a special film that not a lot of people have seen you know so that's always the mo- there's moments like that where i go oh
0: you you
5: you saw that that's so cool
0: yeah mary lynn i love the book it was a really enjoyable read i appreciate you taking time to to talk to me it's been a pleasure.
5: Thank you. The book is good, right? I'm so glad you're reading it. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you again.
0: That's actor, comedian, and author Mary Lynn Rice Cub. Her book, Famish, is available everywhere books are sold, and you can find more information at Rice Cub's website, MaryLynn, MaryLynn.com. and that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website theartssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show my name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of The Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay cool. Thanks for listening. Don't you cry. The